Welcome to 1530. This is episode 15. A summary tip for today's episode. We've got um, Rafa Nadal's clay court progress so far this year. It's looking, you know, a little rough compared to most years, but uh, we'll get into that. Uh, we're also going to talk about the second greatest clay quarter of all time. Uh, Rafa is pretty much the indisputable first, so we want to see who comes in second. And uh, finally, we want to talk maybe a little bit about uh, our, our picks for the French Open, who we think is going to make it all the way, and if anybody can topple Rafa this year, as the door is looking a little more open. And that's what we've got. We'll go ahead and we'll introduce our hosts, Ben and Matt. The stat of the day. Stat for today, we have 57%. This is 57% of points won on the second serve return. Credible number there. Another number from the same match is 69% points won on his own second serve points. If you saw these numbers, normally you would guess, and it was Clay, you would normally guess this is Rafael Nadal with some dominant numbers, taking it to the player's second serve and also defending his own second serve somehow. These are really Nadal-esque numbers. These are even above his career average on clay. But no, these are the numbers of Dominic Team in the semifinal where he beat Nadal in straight sets. So we talked about Dominic Team last episode and talked about his how he's, his steady improvements on clay are leading him to mirror Nadal. And we talked about those numbers that he needs to get better at. One of those was his own second serve uh, return, second serve points, excuse me. And 69% way, way above the, the low 50s where he was. And low 50s is even good enough to win a match, but this is enough to beat the greatest clay quarter of all time. And even then, it was it was a very close match. But those are those are the stats of the day. So so Matt, talk to us about what's what's Nadal been going through. Uh, that's a good question, right? Uh, usually he is really dominant in these clay tournaments leading up to the French Open. This year has not been the case. He hasn't won any of them. Last year, he won all but, what, one, I think? And, uh, but there's still one going, right? We're in the middle of one right now, and uh, so maybe he can turn it around and go into the French Open with a little bit more confidence. Uh, he's, he's got losses to Sissipas and team in these in the last two tournaments, and they, I think they just hit him off the court. Um, I know in the Sissipas match, uh, Rafa drops the first set, and took the second set and then lost in a third, obviously. Um, but in the, in the first set compared to the second set, he was hitting the ball inside the baseline, only 12% of the, the points. Whereas in the second set, he was hitting inside the line. I think it was close to like 34 or 44%, much higher. He was way more aggressive in that second set. And so I think... I think sometimes Rafa just gets a little maybe passive or feels like he doesn't need to be as aggressive with some of these players. And if they come in hitting lines and, uh, and playing well, then he gets in trouble real fast. And when it's a best of three, then it can be hard to recover from that. I think that's part of what he's facing. Hopefully he turns that around. Hopefully he plays a little bit more seriously. And obviously the French Open, you have, you know, you have to win an extra set. And I think that's going to be a little more tough. We can get to that later, but I think that's, kind of what's going on is he's going out and playing these players that are coming out way more aggressive than he is and they're playing well and they're playing consistently enough to be able to get two sets off of them and to, to maintain a, a high enough level to overcome that. But uh, those are my thoughts. That's yeah. why I think he's losing. 
is too passive. I, I agree with you. So last episode, we talked about two different ways, two main strategies to win on clay. So one was you either outgrind your opponent, right? You get in 20, 30 ball rallies and you steadily gain better position. This is more of what Nadal likes to do and even Djokovic to some extent. But then the other way is you just play red line tennis, right? You go for the lines, you go for the shot. You don't let Nadal get comfortable. And I think that's really what these guys have been doing. Soderling did it to the extreme and he still took five sets to beat Nadal. But if you look at his losses to Fognini, he's a guy, I mean, he can implode on the court, right? Mentally, but he can also hit extreme, extremely good shots, extremely clean ground strokes and go for winners. So we saw him do that to Nadal and Monte Carlo. It just, that was a very destructive loss. Nadal was pretty, pretty down about the manner that he lost, not just that he lost, but the manner it was pretty lopsided score. But really, I mean, he took the racket out of Nadal's hands. He didn't let Nadal get comfortable. We saw that with Team. The match was close, but ultimately Team was not – I mean, he can grind it out, but he was not passive in those big moments. He went for huge shots where even Nadal's defense couldn't out-hustle out Team. And again, we saw with Tsitsipas, even though, like I said, it was a three-setter, it was a little bit of a dogfight, Tsitsipas wasn't backing down. He was going to the net. He was hitting big shots. And I think – Nadal, with Clay, it's a comfort thing, and it's also a confidence thing. And if you give him time and you give him rhythm, then pretty soon he'll be opening up with that buggy whip forehand up the line, and he'll be hitting amazing winners. But if you don't even let him get comfortable from the start, that is your chance to win. I'm not saying it's easy. Like you're saying, best out of five. <laughs> Maybe almost impossible. I mean, it's it's been shown that it's possible, but it's, it's very rare that, to be able to beat Nadal and Clay. You have to be, be on your game. And just be ready to outclass him from the start. Don't let him get comfortable in rallies, is all I would say. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and and one other thing too. So I talked about kind of our model we had for clay court analysis for uh, we talked about for Nadal the the all the previous years, the years that he's won and the years that he hasn't won. So really, he's he's been averaging about two tournaments. Um, a year, one on clay for the major warmups, either Monte Carlo, Madrid slash Hamburg, when it was formerly Hamburg for Clay, Rome, and then leading into the French Open. So the three years he didn't win it, 2009, he played pretty excellent. He won actually three of those tournaments. He still fell in the round of 16 to Soderling. We've talked about that extensively. But in 2014 and 15, he lost, and he didn't have that great of a Clay warm-up. And so I think we're seeing the same thing this year. In fact, even worse so. So if he doesn't win Rome – and even before he wins Rome, he's on pace to have a 36% of score is what I'm calling it on here. And so his average score is about 78%. That is a whole two standard deviations lower than his average. There's some years where he even had like in the high 80s. And this is a percent score based on how far he goes in the tournament. So if he loses in the first round, you get less points versus losing in the semis. And not that he's having a nap out of a year, right? I mean, three semifinals – People would kill for that in, in two Masters 1000s and a 500. But these are not normal standards. These are adult standards. And on clay, we just don't see him losing these tournaments. And it's, I think it's very, very shocking. So if he doesn't go ahead and, and rally and do make a deep run at Rome, I think more than anything, it's going to hurt his confidence going into the French. And he's set up to not have a good year. He's setting up to have a mirrored year of his second worst year of warming up for clay since 2015. Yeah, I agree. I mean, those are all good thoughts. He certainly needs confidence. 
especially going into the French Open, and he does not have that right now by no. any means. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he can pull himself together. And <laughs> I mean, even if he does win at Madrid, uh, I don't know if that would be what he, the confidence boost that he needs after losing to who he's lost to, the, these young guns who are coming up. Yeah, or wrong. And yeah. you've still got Djokovic, who he, you know, who is going to be looming no matter what. And Fed's back after not playing. Play for a little while. And so. Yeah. The walls are closing in. Yeah, they are. It's getting tighter. And funny you mentioned the young guns. Again, Tsitsipas, we keep talking about Stefano Tsitsipas, the young Greek. He is now the youngest player to have beaten Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. He's only 20, right? I mean, we know Kyrgios has done it. Some other guys have done it. But Tsitsipas is only 20. There are tons of upside. And Alexander Zverev, who's actually had a decent game on the on the clay, um, he's beaten Djokovic and others. He's having a pretty terrible year. He can't seem to get to string some wins together. So I don't know if it's confidence or what's going on with Alexander Zverev. But Tsitsipas, he's seeming like he's having a great year in team. Team is just sneakily doing some work. He's playing very solid tennis. Yep. That is very true. Yeah. And actually, see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. It's going to be exciting. That's why we watch sport. Before we get into who the second greatest clay quarter is of all time, I want to build up the suspense a little bit. I also want to talk about Federer. So he had a – like you said, he's been away from the clay for a long time. He didn't skip a beat in his first match. He won very comfortably over Richard Gasquet. But then he played Gail Monfils, who's a tricky customer, especially on clay. <clears throat> he bageled him 6-0 in the first set. Then after that, it got complicated. He had to save a couple match points, ended up winning in three sets. Then the next match he played, he got in some trouble and ended up losing that match to uh, Dominic Team. He actually had match points in that one. So Federer, it's, it's interesting. And he won that first set comfortably as well against Dominic Team, but then two tiebreakers after that. So Fed, I don't know if it's weird if he's like, I psych himself out. I got to really focus on the first set and then Clay. And then he wins the first set, and then after that, he just he can't string the game together. And I've seen that before in the French, where he goes, you know, maybe four or five sets when he against lesser opponents that he probably shouldn't. But I mean, he's back on clay, right? He's he looks good, but also there's an asterisk. I think there may be uh, exposure on the game that's that a that an opponent can come back on him. But yeah, yeah, nothing else. No, that's good. Fed's an enigma to me, especially on clay. I feel like talking about passiveness, I feel like he struggles to be aggressive sometimes, and that'll get you in trouble. I mean, team team lost the first set in that match, but yeah, I came back and it was hitting extremely well on second and third sets, and obviously it was enough to knock Fed off and even save, yeah, those match points like you mentioned. It'll be interesting to see where Fed gets in the French Open. Yeah, it's all going to be contingent on draw for me to see how far he can go. If he has too many of these yeah. four or five sets early on, he's not going to be able to make a deep run. It's going to be too yeah, deep. Yeah, I agree. So, well, let's let's go ahead and talk about it. Second greatest clay quarter of all time. So there's a lot of different criteria. So we started looking on our one of our favorite websites, ultimatetennisstatistics.com, and saw 
well, there's some different criteria. How do we judge, right? Who's the best player of all time? So first you can go based off of win percentage on clay. I think that's a pretty safe criteria. So we have for our top few, of course, Rafael Nadal, number one, uh, with about 92% clay matches one. Phenomenal. The second is Bjorn Borg with 86%. Yvonne Lendl, which surprised me there, 81%. Linda was great. And then Guillermo Diaz from Argentina at about 80%. Ken Roswell, number five, and Novak Djokovic, number six. And both Roswell and Djokovic are about 79%. So pretty surprising. I thought, honestly, Feder maybe wouldn't be top five, but I thought he would be top 10. He's down there at number 15. Dominic Team is at number 16. And they're both at 76 and 74% respectively. So I thought that was interesting. And Djokovic is right there, close to the top five. But Nadal and Bjornborg was one I did expect to be pretty high up there. Yeah, after after Rafa, he has the most French Open titles, right? I think he's got six. Yep, and he was one too, where it was crazy because it's usually really difficult, especially back then. You know, when he was playing McEnroe to be able to win the French Open and Wimbledon back to back because of the huge difference in in court speeds. Wimbledon was even faster back then, favored the big servers. And Clay, I mean, some people have argued it's slower, but still a very slow surface. So he was able to switch back and forth with hardly any time between the two tournaments and win it several times. Only Nadal and Djokovic, or only Nadal and Federer, I believe, have been able to complete that double as well when Wimbledon and French in the same year. So pretty impressive. And Nadal's done. That is, that's an impressive yeah, so what are some other criteria here? So the the way I looked at it, and I since we know that Rafa's got that top spot, and we're looking at the second best, I took Djokovic's numbers, and I took out anything that involved Rafa at all, right? Since we're not including them, Bjorn Borg didn't have to play Rafa. He got six titles. Djokovic only has one French Open. He's got something like uh, 30 titles total. Oh, I'm sorry, 14 title total clay titles. And um, I looked at, I went back and looked at the win percentage. And like you said, Novak's down at like sixth, around 79% uh, on clay. But when you take out all of the losses that he has to Rafa and all the times that he played, as well as Fed, I put Fed in there as well. So if you take out Fed and you take out Rafa, his win percentage climbs up to about 85.5%, which is half a percentage shy of, uh, of Yvonne Lidl's, or I'm sorry, of uh, Bjorn Borg's. And my thought is, looking at the NBA, right, you have, uh, have had some really good teams in the past few years that in any other year would win a title, would win an NBA championship. But the Golden State Warriors have just been prolific. They've got a team where their five starters are called the death lineup. You know, you don't want to go up against them. And, and so similar to the Golden State Warriors, you have Rafa Nadal, who has just been in a complete impasse. And so if you take that out and you look at, you know, well, who's runner up, I think that Novak's case is made much stronger when you take those numbers out and you look at that. Um, if you look at Bjorn Borg's ELO rating, he was – he had the highest ELO rating for, I think, four years running um, there on clay, his clay ELO rating, uh, I think between mm, 
1978-1982, he was he had the first, the highest dealer rating. Whereas Djokovic has had either the first or the second highest dealer rating on clay for, I think, about 10 years from, or I guess eight years, from 2011 to current. Um, and so I think that shows, as much as I hate to admit it, I'm not a big fan of Djokovic. He, he has had uh, significantly more consistency and would have more wins <laughs> had he not been in the shadow of Rafin at all. And uh, therefore, my argument is that Novak would take that that second place all-time clay quarter over anybody Bjorn Borg. Sure, he has more, you know, French Open titles or something like that. I, I just think he's more consistent. I think that his current titles don't show if what they would without Rafa in, in his matchup. If you were playing in Bjorn Borg's time, I think you would have just as many, if not more, titles. That's my argument. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good point that you bring up about eras. So I think that's something we take for granted, right? We're in what they call the golden age of tennis, where we have three all time greats and and Murray and Stan who are who are also at least Hall of Famers, right? We have Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, and, and many other really good players. And a lot of people have argued, well, if Nadal wasn't in the French Open, uh, wasn't in those finals, Federer would have three or four more French Open titles. And maybe that's true, but I think I am inclined to agree with you as well because Djokovic, his numbers and his game, they just they suit Clay very well. And he has won a lot of the Masters 1000s, titles on Clay that Federer hasn't. Federer hasn't won Rome. Federer hasn't won Monte Carlo. He's played well at the French, been consistent at the French. But Djokovic definitely has underperformed just, just due to Nadal. And so I think it's it's... Like you're saying, if you're going to match titles, that's one thing. But if you're going to match the the points one or the ELO or these other stats where maybe it's easy to be overlooked if you are the second best, because no one usually looks at the second best in the same era. So I think that's a good point that you bring up there. But win percentage also, I don't know. The win, win percentage for Bjornborg is pretty incredible. Still, even 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 if you took out the – the, the losses to Fed and to Nadal, you had it at 80% about, but Bjorn Borgs is still, or no, you said 86%. Yeah, so that's about the same. That's pretty close yeah. to Bjorn's. Yeah, and he's just shy of Bjorn's. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I don't know what the level of competition was with the clay back in, uh, back in the 80s. Don't know if it was, sure. as, if it was as good. I know because Yvonne Lundell was late 80s, but I guess I guess that's, that's something for to be out on the jury. So a couple other uh, criteria I looked at as well for the second best clay quarter. So we already talked about ma or, uh, match percentage, right, for who's winning the most uh, clay court matches. But let's look at Grand Slam because that's really where the big performers are, right? So in the clay Grand Slam. So Nadal, he's won 98% of his French Open matches. Pretty amazing. He's won 96 or is it 86, and he's lost two of them. Bjorn Borg, second as expected, uh, with about 93% of his Grand Slam matches won. French Open, Mats Vilander, he's won 84%. So it's a big drop off there. And then Djokovic, close right there again, 83%. So so there you go. Djokovic has shown up in multiple of the categories, but Bjorn is also there as well. Number five is Gustavo Kyrdin, and then Jim Courier, Yvonne Lundell, Federer down to eight, and then Jimmy Connors nine. So interesting. I was even surprised to see Andy Murray at number 10. We, we always used to call him a 
a poor clay quarter, and he was early on. He couldn't really even match to save his life. But his movement, I think, overall and his comfort on clay just improved uh, dramatically. And he's he's done much better at clay in recent years. I remember when he beat Nadal in Madrid in the final, and it's like, okay, yep, uh, Murray Murray's found a way to play clay. Yep. So that's that's impressive. And then one other uh, criteria, which I think is kind of an underrated one. You know, we look again a lot of, a lot of titles, a lot of matches won, but do we think about how dominant someone is, right? Because it depends on, you know, matchups. Who do people play? Well, how, how badly or how big is your win over people? Well, that's when you want to look at the total points won as a percentage. And the top three are Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. Uh, uh, excuse me, wrong order. Nadal's first, Djokovic, Federer's. And those are 56.2%, uh, about 54%, and 53.5% for Federer. So, Pretty close spread there. And then Thomas Muster and Jim Courier are after that, rounding out your top five. So interestingly enough, three people from the same era, they're winning the most total points won as a percentage on clay, which again, I was actually pretty surprised to see Feder up that high. But just showing that these guys, you know, even, even in matches that they lose, they're, they're keeping it close because they're able to just win point in and point out on clay. Yeah, that is an interesting, interesting step to look at, and especially, yeah, mentioning that they're three from the same era, they're gobbling up all the points that <laughs> that their opponents are playing. It would yeah. just really stink to be a. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't stink, but it would stink to be a tennis player, a a very good tennis player in this era, if your name was not Dal Djokovic or Federer. Yeah. <laughs> How many people in any other time in tennis would would go home with? Slams and tournament titles, but not in this, not in this era. Not well, with the big three. It's crazy. The other players haven't found a way. I mean, besides a Pete Sampras to rack up more titles, because you really have a three-way race. Federer has the most titles of all time. Nadal's not that far behind him, and Djokovic could even make a late run if he keeps right. winning titles and Federer maybe slows down. So that's what's crazy is that they're all three in the same era winning this many Grand Slam titles. I think it's. It's really mind-boggling, and hopefully we can appreciate it now because I think we'll look back and be like, man, that was a fantastic era of tennis. Just like people, um, there's a resurgence as far as people digging tennis when Bjorn Borg and uh, McEnroe played. That kind of was a resurgence as well. So I think maybe we can see that, and we've seen a lot of people get into tennis and enjoy tennis due to these great stars. And then again, you, you already mentioned ELO, but I'll, I'll just kind of recap it again. So on my sure. rankings here, Nadal um, above leading the way with the – uh, 2668 peak elo rating bjorn borg not that far behind about 30 points behind him at 2638 yvonne lendl shocked to see him in there again again if you see multiple uh names kind of in similar places in the rankings on multiple different criteria maybe there's something to be said so yvonne lendl 2539 djokovic again to your point 2537 so so to me, this is showing, yeah, Bjorn Borg pretty dominant in his in his time, almost as dominant as a Nadal. So for me, I think I got to go with Bjorn Borg, but I also respect uh, Novak Djokovic being up there. Fair so, enough. Fed, I honestly <laughs> thought would be a little higher. I thought he would be maybe a, a solid three or four, and he is in some some of the metrics, but in some he's not even top ten. So I think it just depends on yeah on how you look at it for Fed. He's a, he's a, definitely a good clay quarter. He's not bad by any means, but. I wouldn't say he's a historic great on clay either. No. From a Federer fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that hurt. I know that hurt, Ben. It does. 
So um, I'm going to go ahead and we'll move on to – I just wanted to, I wanted to look. We've already done this with Nadal, looking at how his clay court numbers compare to his normal hardcore and every all other surfaces number. But I just want to recap a couple things because I also have Nadal, Djokovic, Federer numbers uh, out here. So just kind of run through it real quick. So we know Nadal's win percentage on clay is much higher than other surfaces. In fact, it's about a 9% higher and he wins about 10% more return games on clay and he's losing 1% more service games on clay, which is expected. You don't have the big aces and serves to, to save you better. On the other hand, he's losing 4% more service games on clay. Kind of surprised me. He still finds ways to hold craftily even on clay, but he gets broken more than Nadal on clay and he's only winning to one and a half percent more return games on clay and Djokovic He's, he's losing 4% more service games, but he's winning 3% more return games. So if you're keeping track of the plus minus, there, we'll, we'll also do Bjorn Borg here. So this this one, he's losing 14% more return games, which was very shocking to me, the, the differential there. And he's winning about the same number of return games, 0.2% here. So if you keep track of the differential, Bjorn Borg's like minus 14. Djokovic is minus 1. Between those games, Federer is minus two, two and a half, and Nadal is plus 8.5. So based on that differential alone, it's clear who is winning more games, who is able to be more dominant, and you're not getting as as close of matches. There's several matches. I saw Vavrinka. He played an excellent match against Nishikori and beat him in straight sets. Then he went up against Nadal, and it was like 6-2, 6-1. You're like, oh, this stand was starting to look so good, but – he went up against a machine in the doll. And so it just shows, even though he's only, he's losing 1% more service games, he's breaking 10% more times. It's mind boggling. Mm-hmm. And Federer, he, I mean, it makes sense with the movement and he's not able to impose his will of tennis anymore. Really? He's only breaking 2% more. Djokovic is breaking well, not as, not as much as the doll with 10%. He's breaking at 3%, but he's being broken at 4% rate. So to me, it was really interesting to see those differentials and kind of cement in my mind, yeah, Nadal is the greatest uh, on clay. It's not just matchups. It's also just the way he's able to to return, ultimately. Who can return best? Because you're going to get broken more, so you want to minimize it, but who is going to return the best? It's important. Right. Yeah, I, I was watching the Nadal Sisipas match the other day, and one of the commentators said, uh, "Well, they quoted somebody. I apologize. I don't know who they were quoting, but they said, I don't consider uh, a break to be a break until it's consolidated. And so it's like, yeah, okay, it's great if you get a break, but if they just break you right back, then it doesn't matter. It's it, you know, you're back to even. I thought that was interesting." But to your point, this goes, and I should look this up. But how many how many French Opens has Rafa won without during a set? Yeah, he I just let me see. Um, it's at least two that I know of. So I have it in here. Yeah, sheet two. He's there's two French Opens he didn't drop a set. That's a lot of matches, and it's I mean best of five. You're bound to drop one somewhere, right, by a fluke or something. But no. Two whole tournaments where he hasn't dropped a set. That's incredible. Yeah. And actually is- and actually I miscounted. So that's it's real it's four, but really three because the the other one he pulled out for injury. 
So oh, okay. while losing those sets. So really, so three times he's won it without dropping a set. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. And Federer, I think he's only done that for sure at Wimbledon once because he did it recently. He might have only that's done true. it one other time in a slam. And Djokovic, I mean, for all the things that we laud Djokovic for, it's not not dropping sets. Sometimes he's he's a yeah. big fighter, right? He drops sets frequently enough in majors. I don't think he's won a major without dropping a set. Yeah, I would be surprised. But he also gets most of his his well, he's gotten lost majors from hardcore, and I think it's harder to do that on the hardcore. Yeah. Than on these other specialty. So true. give him that credit. Give him the point. All right, Matt. Who do you got for the French Open? Who's your pick? Uh, you know, I can't go anywhere but Rafa. <laughs> All right. I always believe. <laughs> What's that? I said, and, and why? Why? I mean, like you said, he doesn't usually disappoint, but even in this year, why are you still going with Rafa? He's having a little bit no, of No, I think, I, I think until somebody beats him again, it, there's no reason not to go with him, right? I mean, year over year over year, Rafa is there, and he's consistent, and he's there. I mean, he's had, what, three losses now, I guess. But he's got 11 championships. It's like... Yeah. He, I'm not going to bet against that. <laughs> it, no, it, he might be going into this with less confidence, with fewer wins than uh, in the past. Sure, there might be some evidence there to support maybe you know some, a shaky foundation. But in the end, the French Open is Rafa's tournament. And I think he's going to turn it on and, and dial it in. And as long as he doesn't get sidetracked by an injury, his knees hold out for him and things, I think, I think he'll be there. Yeah. So. No, that's a good point. It's hard to argue against that. I'm going to go ahead, but I will uh, pick against it. I will go, and I'm going to go actually even against the betting favorite. So right now, Djokovic is a slight betting favorite. I'm going to go against that too. I'm going to just pick the field. So anybody but uh, Nadal or Djokovic, the two favorites. Of course, Nadal should be probably the overwhelming favorite, but having some struggles this year. I just think based on my model, it's just not set up necessarily to win. I don't know if he's dealing with an injury, if it's just mental, but... I'm going to go with – team would be probably my most likely pick, but I'm just going to go ahead and chicken out here and just pick the field up the sides <laughs> Nadal and Djokovic. I just think it's likely with some of these young guns moving up. Maybe Tsitsipas. I don't think Zverev will get his head together, but you never know. This uh, is I interesting because when we had uh, – uh, when we did this at the end of the year last year and we were talking about our predictions for the coming year – I was all for the young guns, and you were not. And the tables have turned. Tables have turned. Tables have turned. I mean, usually, you got to favor Nadal and Clay, and I figure French <laughs> Open's the most wide open if you don't have a Nadal. And to me, I just assume it's a given that for Nadal every year. But the way I'm seeing it unfold this year, and and looking at the numbers, I I just I think it would be an aberration if he was able to pull it off this year. So. Yeah. I You're right. I'm going, I'm going against my pick, you could say. <laughs> uh, that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. We'll thing, see what I happens. Say, one thing I do want to say, though, to be to be clear, not not necessarily about the pick, but you know, we talk about Nadal losing at Madrid, close one to Tsitsipas. Those conditions at Madrid aren't going to be the conditions in Rome. We know Madrid, if, you, if you've seen Madrid and know about the tournament, it's a higher altitude city in general. The clay there, when it gets warm especially, it plays a lot faster. That's why Federer's been able to do decently there. He's won it a couple times. 
Nadal, that's probably, I mean, not that he says, not that he plays bad there, but that might be one of the more, might be one of his worst tournaments in the clay. Rome, if you want a barometer for the French Open, not that Nadal wins every year, wins Rome every year, he wins the French Open, but the clay plays similar to to Rome. It's slower, the conditions will be similar, it's a, it's a lower altitude. So uh, what I'm saying is if Nadal gets comfortable in Rome and plays well there, I think that's a better barometer than Madrid where the conditions might not mimic it. Now, the temperature at Madrid, you know, if Paris does have a higher temperature, the clay can start to play a little faster. You can kind of see that in the afternoons when it bakes a little bit more. But usually the temperature is moderate enough. It doesn't really have an effect. And Nadal sometimes he uses it to his advantage. So there's been times where commentators are like, oh, it's playing faster. This could be rough for Nadal. And then all of a sudden he starts ratcheting up the forehand up the line. They're like, oh, just kidding. It's against him. You know, it's against it's against his opponents. This is uh, this is even worse. So slow conditions or fast conditions don't necessarily mean trouble for Nadal, but it could be if he's playing the right opponent who's trying to take it to him and right, play the red line tennis. That could be a little bit of a factor, but I don't I don't, I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Rome will be an interesting one, I think, for me to see. If he doesn't win it or loses earlier on, semifinals or earlier, then my pick is definitely going to be still thought. If he wins it, okay, maybe maybe I'm a little bit split. But it'll be interesting, needless to say, because we have Nadal and Federer and Djokovic. We have these top guys all playing. We'll see how they do, because this is going to be that confidence check going into the French, if they can even win it, each of them. Yep, yep. No matter what, we'll have good tennis. Enjoy it while we can. Enjoy it while the big three are still hanging around. While Fed's back playing clay. Yeah. Not going to be there forever. It's a treat. <laughs> it is sure a treat to watch tennis with the, with the big four and with the, the historic players that they have. So until next time, we'll see you guys in the court. And please visit us at cognitionsphere.com where we post the the podcast and these articles. Our theme music is brought to you by Kevin MacLeod with excerpts from his song, Cool Rock.